Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Father, we come before you one more time, Lord, before we open up your word together in this special way. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us from it. Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts. And uh, Father, I pray that you would meet the need of each heart this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, Paul confidently had declared, You are not under law, but under grace. And Paul has been defending and expounding on that ever since. And he is going to continue to expound upon that clear through Romans chapter 7. And we've got at least one more week in Romans chapter 7 next week as we uh, think about this topic of how we are not under the law any longer. We are no longer under law, but we are under grace. You know, Paul carefully explained in Romans chapters. 1 through 4, that the law is no good in your justification. The law is not to be used. It was not intended for you, for you to keep it so that you might be saved because you're already a lawbreaker. Right? And now here in this section of, of the book of Romans, Paul is explaining that the law is not useful for your sanctification either. It is not intended. Uh, it is not, you are not to be under it in order to be sanctified. We are no longer under the law. Commitment to a holiness code alone. To a commitment to a holiness code alone does not sanctify you. Right? Rather, Paul's been teaching here, you must die to that holiness code because guess what? You ain't holy. Right? You already are not holy. So it, it, a commitment to a holiness code alone is never going to sanctify you in the way that you need to be sanctified. And that's what Paul taught us in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. He said in, in verse 1, Don't you know that the law is only binding on a person as long as he lives? Paul's making the point here that a covenant is only binding upon someone as long as, as they live. And then he goes on to illustrate that point with another covenant, right? He he draws upon the well-known marriage covenant. And he uses this illustration to teach this point, right? That a, a covenant is only binding as long as you live. And, and he uses this illustration of this marriage. He says, um, in a marriage, you are bound to the other person only as long as you both shall live. Right? Isn't that what we say when we, when we take our vows? However, when one spouse dies, the other is free to remarry without the charge of adultery. Why? Because the covenant is only as only good as long as you both shall live. Paul says that that's like us in the old covenant. Right? That's like us in the Mosaic law. We are not adulteresses when we say that we are no longer under that covenant that we were once under. No, because we have died to that covenant so that we could then be raised again with Christ and united with him in a new covenant. We no longer serve God through the oldness of the letter 
right? The the commandments of God at, at Mount Sinai were written by God himself, but they were written on tablets of stone, external from us. But by contrast, we now serve God in the newness of the Spirit, where his Spirit empowers us to obey him from the heart. And this is where we left off last week here in, in verse 7. Now, if you want to understand and anticipate the question here that is going to arise, I mentioned last week that Romans chapter 7 can really be outlined based upon three questions that Paul raises, one in verse 1, one in verse 7, and one in verse 13. Right? And so we're addressing the second of these questions here this morning. And if you want to anticipate the second question here, you have to, you have to keep in mind uh, sort of the mindset of someone who might be struggling with this idea that they're no longer under the law. They, they are probably at this point, and hearing Paul sort of celebrating the fact that he's no longer married to the Old Covenant, but he's instead free from the Old Covenant and married to Christ, they're probably thinking to themselves, now wait a minute, Paul, you're, you're clearly celebrating your death to God's law. Right? You know, you know what I'm talking about, Paul, this holy covenant given to us by God himself. Right? It's a holy covenant. It was a holy law that God gave, us, gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. What exactly are you implying here, Paul, by saying that we could be dead to God's holy law? And, and so look how Paul kind of gives voice to this objection that he anticipates here when he says in verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Paul, are you insinuating that the God-given law is actually wrong, that it is bad, that it is sinful in some way? And by implication, are you saying that God himself is not good because he gave us something sinful? He gave us a bad law? Because this is pretty serious. You know, sometimes human rules need to be overturned and changed, right? Human rules and regulations can be good or bad. We know this. We readily recognize it all the time. I, I was thinking of a, an illustration of this, and I, I remember that when Michelle and I were going to um, a Christian university that we attended in, in the Midwest about 20 years ago now, uh, during my, my sophomore year at that university, it was a Christian school, I became an RA. And that, what that means is it was a battlefield promotion. You're one, one year you're there amongst your friends, same level. The next year suddenly, man, you're, you're suddenly in charge of enforcing some of the rules, right? And so here I was in this position of needing to enforce some of the university's rules found in the student handbook. And, you know, there were some pretty funny rules. And I, I remember thinking, boy, some of these rules have a story behind them, right? They didn't just come out of nowhere. Um, so, for example, there was one I remember specifically. It was something to the effect that no student was allowed to skin a deer in the student bathrooms, right? I mean, that begs the story, doesn't it, right? I never had to enforce that rule. But there were also some archaic dress code rules, right? And and, and these were rules that were technically on the books, but they were so archaic that nobody, you know, they were only half-heartedly enforced, if at all. For example, there was a rule for men 
that if they wanted to wear sandals to class, you had to wear socks with your sandals. Can you imagine, imagine this? I don't know where this came from, but um, I don't want you to get the wrong impression of my university. It was not a legalistic place. It was not an, even an out-of-touch place then or now. But this was a, a holdover rule from a, a previous generation. And whatever evil was perceived in sockless, sandal-wearing men is, it w was long gone. Right? It, it was not a problem anymore. Nobody viewed that as something simple or wrong. And I, I still remember the day that the administration finally went through the arduous process of doing away with some of these outdated rules. And when the students caught wind of it in, in chapel that day, they, all the guys brought, brought in their socks and they balled them up. And when they announced that they no longer had to wear socks with their sandals, they hooped and hollered and threw the socks up into the air and started shouting. And uh, it was like a big party, right? I mean, it was a bad rule. It was an outdated rule, and we, we overturned it. And even the administration thought, thought that that was funny. So my point is that human rules sometimes can be good or bad, and, and sometimes they can become dated and irrelevant and need to be rewritten or even overthrown. We know this. But what about God's laws? What about God's laws? Does Paul's preaching of the gospel... When he, when he preaches that the gospel frees you from the law of God, is he somehow insinuating, kind of like my, my university rules, that God's laws are archaic, that they were from a previous time, that they are outdated, that maybe they're no good, or even worse, maybe they were sinful. Is that, is that what Paul's preaching of the gospel is, in, is, in, is indicating in some way? Well, Paul gives us his now familiar but vehement response to these things. If you look down in, in verse 7, he says, by no means, meganoita in the Greek. It's a very emphatic denial. May it never, ever be. Now, the big idea of Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 is this. And I'm just going to read this for you. And if you're a note taker, this would be a good thing to write down. Uh, the big idea is this. Though we celebrate our death to the law and our freedom to be united with Christ, the law itself isn't to blame. Sin is. The law is good, and so is the lawgiver. Now, that was a really, really long, big idea. I'm going to read it again. Though we celebrate our death to the law and our freedom to be united with Christ, the law itself isn't to blame. Sin is. The law is good, and so is the lawgiver. Do you remember the, the early days of the Geico commercials? You know, 15 minutes or less could save you 15% or more on your car insurance. Almost everybody can probably recite that. You've heard it so much. And one of their early uh, marketing campaigns was, it's so simple a caveman could do it. Do you remember that? I'm not seeing a lot of head nodding, but hopefully you remember that. Well, it dawned on me that I could sum up my big idea this morning in such simple terms that a caveman could remember it. Okay, I mean, I, I gave you this really long, wordy, big idea, but it could be this simple, right? Law, good. Sin, bad. Right? It could be. It really could be that simple, folks. It really could. It's simple enough. So simple, a caveman could remember it. Yet, even though this is so simple, a caveman can understand it. We struggle with this. 
we, we really struggle with this. Now, I want to make sure you feel this before we enter into it, lest you think this is something that only pertains to somebody else. I think there's a, a temptation to want to dismiss the law and never read it, never interact with it. And by that, I mean the Old Testament in general, right? I think there's a temptation to want to dismiss it, to never read it, to, to rarely, if ever, interact with it. Or there's a temptation, I think, even these days, to be embarrassed of God's law, to be embarrassed of how politically incorrect it is. There's a temptation to pick and choose which laws are holy and righteous and good because we think we know better than God. And I think on the other extreme here, some, some people are so afraid of the charge of legalism that they just want to jettison everything to do with the law altogether. Right? They don't want to be labeled legalistic in any way so that they don't want to, they don't even enter into understanding God's law at all or see any value in it. You know, we, we read this morning from, uh, from the Old Testament, Psalm 19. And that's a psalm where David, you know, a, a saint of old like David, absolutely delights in God's law. And he speaks of it in, in such pleasurable terms. And so what do we do with that? Right? How do we reconcile Paul saying, hey, we're no longer under it, and almost celebrating that fact with the attitude of those like David and, and others who said, you know, that it's, the, God, your law is sweeter than honey. You know? Um, what, what do we do with that? So this is very serious because it, implicates God and his goodness and his holiness and his righteousness and it's also very practical as you think about what do I do with nearly two-thirds of my Bible and how does it relate to me well I, I want you to hear from Paul directly this morning on the goodness of the law and the badness of our sin and I just have two points for you from this text the first one is this God's law grants you the knowledge of your sin. God's law grants you the knowledge of your sin. You know, there's a difference between knowing that you've done something wrong in general and knowing that you've done something that that makes you accountable to a, a holy creator God. There's nothing particularly remarkable about knowing that you've done something wrong in general, right? Everybody does things that they will admit are wrong. Right? Almost, almost everyone will admit that. Everybody has done things that they regret and wish they could do differently. Everyone has to apologize sometimes for wrong things that they've committed to others. And in fact, some people will even go so far as to admit that they've done something criminal. But that's, that's entirely different an entirely different matter between knowing knowing that you have sinned before God, knowing and believing you have sinned before God. The knowledge of sin can only rightly be understood in relationship to God. What did David say in Psalm uh, in the Psalms? He said, Lord, against you and against you only have I sinned. Right? When you truly understand sin, you understand that it is first and foremost a, 
in a fence between you and God, and, and that it holds you to a higher accountability, and it holds you to uh, even a severer penalty than you would ever want to apply to yourself. We don't like that. We don't want to think about that. But how else would we know this if it wasn't for the gift of God's law? God's law is what gives us the knowledge of our sin. What does God say is right and wrong? What standards will, will he hold me accountable to? How could we know if God didn't tell us? Well, he has. And thank God that he has. Right? Have you ever, can you imagine stepping into a classroom and being asked to take a test? over material you, you never studied, you didn't even know it was going to be on the, on the test. Right? God hasn't done that to us. Right? He, he has told us, hey, look, this is the standard. This is what I'm holding you accountable to. And so we have an opportunity to compare ourselves to the standard, to prepare ourselves for that moment when we stand before him. And that's a gift from God. It's a grace from God. Paul says here in, in verse 7, he says, what shall we say then, that the law is sin by no means? Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If it wasn't for God's law, we wouldn't even know that we were sinners. When Paul says this here, I don't think he means... I don't think that he means without God's law that he would be completely ignorant of any sense of right or wrong. That's, that's not what he means. But like I, like I was saying here, what he means is that through the law, he comes to truly understand his status as a lawbreaker before God. That's unique knowledge that you can only get through God's law makes me think of the, uh, the John Bunyan classic, Pilgrim's Progress. I always kind of marvel at the beginning of that story as the man Christian uh, begins to read his Bible and suddenly appears on his back a big stinking burden that represents his sin. Right? And then as he looks around at his, at his wife and his kids and the, his neighbors and everybody else in the city of destruction, they all seem so carefree, right? And they, it, it, even when you see like um, movie portrayals of of, of uh, Bunyan's classic *Pilgrim's Progress*, you know Bunyan or um, Christian's the only one who has the burden on his back, right? And and you think, Christian, why put yourself through that, right? Just forget about that. Look at us; we're nice and happy and carefree. We have no stinking burden on our back. Right? And indeed, it, it would have been much easier in the short term for Christian to go on in ignorance of his sin along with the rest of his friends, family, neighbor, and countrymen. Yet, through God's law, Christian came to understand that, that he actually had a burden that was previously invisible to him. He couldn't see it. He couldn't feel it. But it was there. Through God's law, you can't unsee just how much of a lawbreaker you are. You can't unsee it. <laughs> and, and that's the gift of God's law to us, is the knowledge of our sin. There's a man by the name of Ray Comfort who has written really a, a whole book kind of on this topic here about the, the use of the law to reveal the knowledge of our sin. The name of that book is The Way of the Master. And in that book... 
uh, Ray Comfort notes that uh, in the Gospels, when Jesus is interacting with someone who is self-righteous, Jesus almost every single time administers the law to that person. So if someone comes up to him and they're puffed up in their own self-righteousness, Jesus doesn't doesn't extend grace to them. He, he's not he, he's not gracious, kind Jesus in that moment. No, Jesus always begins to preach the law to them. Why? Because it is through the law that that self-righteous person has an opportunity to come to the knowledge of their sins and repent and believe. And likewise, it is to those who in the Gospels were already humbled, already knew that they were sinners, that, that Jesus would immediately extend grace. It's a really simple but powerful observation and it's one that I think we can even use when, when we share our faith with others. Right? Sometimes we want to rush right to the cross. We want to rush right to explaining to people how gracious God is, but they don't even understand that they're lawbreakers. They don't have this knowledge uh, that Paul is speaking of here. They, they need to be brought some law, and that's, that's not always a fun thing to deliver to people, but, but people need to hear it. And so that's... That's one role of the law, not only in our own lives, but in an ongoing way in our Christian lives. We need to be faithful to administer the law to other people so that they understand that they are going to be held accountable before God. Well, Paul goes on here um, in the rest of this verse here, verse 7, to give an illustration from his own life that illustrates the way that the law brings a knowledge of sin. And you'll notice that through, beginning here in verse 7 and really through the rest of the chap, chapter, if you take some time to, to scan through these verses, you'll notice uh, that Paul is speaking in the first person. He says, I, I, me, I, I, me. It's, it's very, very personal. He's giving a personal testimony here. And even though Paul is sharing here a personal testimony, I think that you'll find that you can really identify with it. This really is the experience of every person who encounters God's law in a saving way. Right? You, you're, if, if you've been saved by grace and you've come to a knowledge of your sin and been saved by grace, you should identify with Paul's personal testimony here in, in this passage. Now, I, I do want to mention to you, just by way of building your, your own knowledge, some people do see here echoes of Adam or Israel, as if Paul is speaking on behalf of Adam or on behalf of the Israel nation and not on behalf of himself. And while I think that that provides some interesting food for thought, it provides some interesting parallels to think about, I think it's best just to take the word of God at its plain, simple face value here. Paul is so clearly referring to his own experience. Now, Look here at the, at the end of verse 7 here where Paul says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. You know, be before Paul came to Christ, he was a very self-righteous person. Uh, Paul recounts what he thought of himself before Christ in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4-6 through 6, when he said this, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, 
blameless. Paul viewed himself as blameless under the law. Now, that doesn't mean that he thought that he had never sinned. He just believed that he kept all the different regulations for dealing with that sin blamelessly. He felt like he had, had a clear conscience before God in keeping God's law. And Paul was very self-righteous about this. But I think here in, in the book of Romans, we get a little bit of a glimpse. Paul is revealing that even in his legalistic blamelessness, I think there was a commandment that gnawed at him. And I think it was this 10th commandment here, you shall not covet. Think about it. For somebody who is committed like Paul was to externally keeping the law and um, you know, being righteous and blameless in every way, which one of the Ten Commandments isn't, an, isn't merely an external action? It's this one, isn't it? The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. That's a, um, not just a matter of external action like not murdering or, or you know, not stealing or not committing adultery, but you shall not covet. It gets at the heart. And even after you've done everything you can do to not worship other idols and not to steal and not to commit adultery and not to murder and all these, all these different things, I think Paul, in his legalistic righteousness, looked within and realized, how do I keep myself from coveting? Right? And with this commandment, Paul describes springing up, springing to life, every sort of covetous desire. Right? And um, I, I think it's interesting that, that this commandment in particular, you shall not covet, is described elsewhere by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.5 5, and in Colossians 3.5. Paul describes covetousness as idolatry. Right? And why is that? It's because when we look out at something that's not ours and we want it in a, in a wrong way, we are, we are committing idolatry. We want that thing more than we want God. We want that thing more than we want to do what God commands. And so Paul found, I think, in the long run, that through his inability to keep covetousness, uh, the law against covetousness, he was also breaking the first and second commandments to have no other gods before God and to not have any idols before him either. So even in his legalistic blamelessness, I think this 10th commandment gnawed at Paul. And, and it is just a reminder to us the value of God's law because no one can truly come to Christ without a knowledge, not just that they've done wrong things, but that they have sinned against God. So even if you think that, that you know, through what Paul's been saying that, wow, God gave us a gift that led to our death, well, it, it's actually God's grace to us because through it, we find our need for him. It, it paves the way for, uh, for those of us who eventually come to Christ to come to a knowledge of our sin. So secondly here, second point, verses 8 through 11, 
God's law draws sin out into the open. So God's law gives us a knowledge of sin, but it also, it, it really draws out the sin into the open. Uh, so really, if my first point was, what good thing does God's law do? It gives us the knowledge of sin. The second point is sort of how it does it. The law exacerbates our sinfulness. It arouses our sinful desires, Paul said back in, in verse 5. I'm being harassed by a bee up here. <clears throat> if you see me swatting the air, I'm not, uh, I'm not dancing, swatting away the bees. I don't know if you've ever been in the kitchen of our church, uh, but if you ever wander in there and you, you take a look at the freezer of our church, somebody, even before I got here, I, don't know, I think I know who it was, but <laughs> I'm not sure who it was, posted a copy of the Ten Commandments right on the freezer. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever stopped to consider why someone posted a copy of the Ten Commandments on, on our freezer? I, I don't know, as a matter of fact, but I, I have a very strong suspicion that somewhere along the line, some little fingers were stealing some sweet treats out of that freezer. I, I just suspect it. And so someone got the idea, let's put a copy of the Ten Commandments right there on the, on the freezer. I don't know, but I, I suspect that's why it's there. And I, I just think it would be interesting to know, because Paul teaches us here, right, that sin basically was sort of lying dead within him, and then comes the commandment, and then what happens? Sin seizes that opportunity provided by that commandment, and it brings about all this desire within us. So, so in a way, posting the command Thou shalt not steal, right? Right there. I wonder if in in little hearts, if that sort of rate could possibly raise up this desire. You know, the, this this sin could seize upon that opportunity because that's that's the principle here that, that Paul is teaching in verses eight through eleven. Paul says that it is it is um, sin that is to blame, not the law of God. The law draws sin out into the open by providing an opportunity to clearly rebel against God's expressed will. So God puts his, his expressed will out there in the form of a commandment, and sin cannot resist the opportunity to rebel against what God has said. It doesn't matter what God has said. There is, within you and I, the, the capability of every sinful perversion because sin is alive and well in our flesh. And when God says don't do it, sin wants to do it. And it seizes that opportunity. To return to this example of the 10th commandment here, um, Paul says that sin seized the opportunity in Paul's own life to suddenly produce in him a multitude of covetous desires. It's as if the command wakes up a sleeping giant. Paul says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. And, and I don't think Paul meant here again that, that sin is completely powerless or even absent. Because in, in Romans 5.13, Paul has already stated that sin was in the world before the law came. But when the law is introduced, the sin that was there all along so clearly seems to spring to life commentator by the name of Christopher Ashe put it this way. He said, without the law, sin lay dormant. 
I like that word. That sin it was as if sin, sin was dormant within us. This commentary goes on to share a, a little illustration here. He, he says, imagine a, an occupied territory where the people are maybe s- sort of quietly hostile to the, to the oppression. But then, suddenly, the occupying power decides to send out their tax collectors with the command to pay the taxes. And now, suddenly, what was once passive hostility springs to life as active rebellion. That's exactly what happens here with God's commandment. Um, What Maybe what might have been sort of a passive aggression against God within us is brought to life in the giving of the commandment. I mean, that just describes, I think, our fleshly reaction to God's law so well. And... um, you know, our flesh, I think, it just cries out, tell me what to do, will you? Well, I'll show you. Right? That's the attitude of our flesh. Another way to put this in verse 9, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. By the way, this is the primary reason why some people think Paul is speaking on behalf of Adam here, because if you take this verse very, very literally, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. Well, if you take it really literally, Adam is the only one who could truly be said to have been alive before a law was given. But I think that's taking this verse too literally. Paul is clearly describing his own experience of thinking he was thinking he was alive, even though in reality he was dead spiritually and didn't know it. Then God's law comes along and it puts him to death. And again, this is a grace from God. A a Puritan, old Puritan preacher by the name of Thomas Watson once said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Well, why would God give us a law that would arouse these sinful passions in us? Verse 10 here, Paul says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Did God bait and switch? Did did he promise me something good that really was intended to kill me? No, 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 may it never, ever be. The monster of sin was there before the coming of God's law, but God gave his law so that it might draw it out and provoke it and arouse it so that what was once dormant might be more clearly seen by us and hopefully then pave the way for our salvation. God is good. His law is good. It is sin that is bad. The nature of sin is that it deceives us. Paul says in verse 11 that sin seizes the opportunity through the commandment to kill us, and it does this in a deceptive way, saying things like, you shall not surely die. That's as old as the Garden of Eden. right? It deceives us. He says, you shall gain wisdom and happiness and knowledge and every good thing. Sin lulls us into thinking that we have not died and that we are not dying, but the law wakes us up to the truth. And here's the conclusion of the matter in verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I think this is a significant three terms here that Paul uses. 
And I have to give a little hat tip to John Piper here. He developed my thoughts on this verse. You remember back in Romans chapter 5, those famous verses where, uh, where Paul said, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Now, you would scarcely die for a righteous person. What is a righteous person? It's a person who, who does what is right. You might, Paul says you might scarcely die for them, but though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So the way Paul uses these two terms here, righteous and good, he says you might die for a righteous person, but for a good person, you would dare even to die. So being good is even better than being righteous in Paul's mind here, the way he's using these terms. And so when you come back here to Roman. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 12, and he says, so the, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I, I love the way he, did, he uses these three terms here, that not, not only is God's word holy, that is set apart, right? it, it is separate from sin. God's, word, God's law is holy. Not only is it holy, but it is, it is righteous, it is right, it is correct. Right? You, you don't look at God's, you're never going to look at God's law and say, wow, that deceived me or that was wrong in some way. It is righteous. Not only is it holy and set apart from evil, not only is it right and correct, but it is also good. It is good. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we can see this in his laws that are good. We can, like the, the saints of old, like David, delight in God's law. We read this morning Psalm 19, which is sort of a shorter psalm celebrating God's law. We could have read Psalm 119. I could have put you through that. right? And that's a long... I mean, you talk about a long meditation on the goodness of God's law, the holiness of it, the righteousness of it, the goodness of God's law. Psalm 119, you read that this week. And set your mind upon the goodness of God. I love, though, in, in Psalm 19, that you know David has clearly been pondering the perfection of God's law, and I love how he's humbled by it by the end of the psalm. Let me just read a few verses of that to you here in closing. Psalm 19. He, gets, he goes through this long list here of, of describing the, the law of the Lord is perfect, how it revives the soul, how his testimonies are sure, it makes you wise, his precepts are right, and causes your heart to rejoice. The commandments are pure, it enlightens your eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, it endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. And then look at the reaction that, that he has to this, to this meditation. He says, who can discern his errors? David was humbled by, by his meditation of God's law. He said, who can discern it? And he had this desire to be justified. And he cries out to God. He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. What is that but a desire for justification by faith? Right? That's, 
that's the, the conclusion that your meditation on God's good laws should bring you. And he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I think anyone who is properly meditating on the holiness, right, righteousness, and, and goodness of God's law is going to end the way, the way David ends Psalm 19 with this prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The, the law reveals to us so much about the character and will of God and we're not intended to use it as a means of justification. And we're not even intended to use it as a means of sanctification alone. Our means of sanctification is not under the law as our master. We are under grace, not under law. And in union with Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit, God does in us what we could never do on our own. And he causes us to obey him in the power of the Spirit. But don't jettison the law. It teaches us so much. And it is so useful. It gives us a knowledge of our sin. It draws out our sin that we might be saved. And in meditating on God's law, we are instructed in righteousness. The gospel does not negate the law of God as evil or irrelevant. That's what Romans chapter 7 teaches. The gospel does reveal the necessary role of the law to bring us to Christ. And so we thank God for his perfect law. And we thank God even more for his perfect son who came and laid his life down on the cross for all the ways that we fail to keep God's perfect, holy, righteous, and good law. Jesus died on the cross for all the ways we failed to keep the law, and he rose again on the third day to newness of life so that in union with him we might be pleasing unto God. And my prayer for you is that through the law of God your sin might become bitter so that you might truly know and remember, Christian, the sweetness of Christ. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ and be saved. Christian, every time you encounter the law of God, let it drive you back to the gospel and remind yourself of, your, of the sweetness of Christ. Let me pray for you to that end. Father, we come now to you. Lord, so thankful for your good gift of the law. Lord, your laws, your, your commands are holy, they are righteous, and they are good. Father, we pray. We pray this morning that you would, Lord, give us a knowledge of our sin through your law. We pray, Lord, that as the law draws out that sin, that it would drive us to Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who have never trusted in Christ, maybe those who are even watching online, have never trusted in Christ. Father, I pray that today would be the day 
that they might know the bitterness of their sin, yes, but Lord, ultimately that they might know the sweetness of Christ to save them from that sin. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Lord, I pray now that you would add your blessing to the preaching of your word. 